So the, the reading continues on page 284, uh, 1 Samuel 14, 24. Now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, uh, under an oath saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth, because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath, so he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Mikmash to Aijalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder, and taking sheep, cattle and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them, together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, Go out among the men and tell them, each of you, bring me your cattle and sheep, and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat, with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that night, and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night, and plunder them till dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if it lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of the men said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, You stand over there, I and Jonathan my son will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, the men replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give me the right answer. And Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, Cast the lot between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what, it, what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die? Saul said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. 
Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. The name of his older daughter was Mirab, and that of the younger was Michal. His wife's name was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimaz. The name of the commander of Saul's army was Abner, son of Ner, and Ner was Saul's uncle. Saul's father, Kish, and Abner's father, Ner, were sons of Abiel. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines, and whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. Thank you for continuing our reading there. Do please keep that passage open in front of you. And I'm going to pray for us as we begin. Uh, Father in heaven, you are uh, very great. And we pray that you would speak to us through this scripture, that we might uh, hear your voice, that we might uh, obey you, that we might love you as we should, and that you might change us to be more like uh, the Lord Jesus through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are we supposed to make of Saul? Is he a good and godly man? A selfish loser? An unpleasant, ugly character? Though Saul is still on the scene throughout the rest of this book, right up to chapter 31 where he dies, it is at this point, before David turns up on the scene, that we're given the book of 1 Samuel's verdict on Saul. And I think the surprising thing is how positive the verdict is. If you have any Bible knowledge at all, if you've been reading through this book, you might well think Saul is not well favoured in the Bible. Just look down at verse 47. Dave just read for us. Verse 47. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, uh, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines, wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. Times were volatile. Uh, Tribes throughout this part of the world were beginning to gather together in kingdoms and appointing kings over them. And so you'll remember back to last week's passage as Andy Uh, preached it for us. Chapter 8, verse 20, the people had said, uh, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And that is what they got. In chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul. He's a foot taller than all the other Israelites. He's a, a mighty man. He's a warrior. And God says to Samuel these words, anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. That was his job description, and it's what he does. It's what the people want. All is is meshed together. And the people are prepared to bear the cost. You'll remember that Samuel said to the people, he's going to take. He's going to take the best of your land. He's going to take the best of your crops. He's going to take the best of your people. And the people said, that's fine. And Samuel repeats it in chapter 12. He says, this is what the king's going to do. And they say, that's fine. We're happy to suffer the cost because we're going to have a deliverer. And you'll notice in verse 52, the end of this was a summary of Saul. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. Saul is a taker. He takes things for himself. He takes an army to himself. But it's okay because he's a deliverer. 
and he is a successful deliverer. All of which uh, strikes us as a little bit odd because we, we're programmed to think of Saul as a negative character. How are we supposed to reconcile those two things? The story of Saul begins with a request for a king like the nations, chapter 8. And so they get one like the nations. He's an outwardly very impressive character. He's big and he's strong. And perhaps the nations looking on, seeing his military might, would say, he's a good guy. He's, he's really good at what he does. He's still outwardly impressive in chapter 14 as he, uh, his, his army uh, fights off the Philistines. But that doesn't mean that Saul has divine approval. Though he is confirmed as king in chapter 12, uh, everywhere you look at the detail of Saul's life, you see a compromised character. Oh sure, Saul is outwardly impressive. He has a very successful career, builds a nation, he's handsome, he's rugged, he is uh, the man that makes other men wet themselves and women go weak at the knees. He has the approval of men. He even perhaps has the approval of history as written by the nations around him. Because after all, isn't that what the world cares about? Someone who gets things done. Someone who builds a kingdom for himself. Someone who is successful at the job he's given. So long as you are successful, what does character matter? Well, from God's perspective, it matters rather more than outward success. Uh, we could look at chapter 13, 14, 15. It doesn't really matter where we dip in. The message is largely the same. We're going to look at chapter 14, as we heard it read. But I want you to notice something. Just flick back a page to chapter 13, verse 13. This is the context. A very similar situation. Saul is waiting for Samuel uh, to come and offer the sacrifice before the battle, uh, to mediate with God. Samuel says, wait for seven days, I'll come. He gets to sort of six and a half days and Saul gets a bit panicked. The army starts fleeing and so he offers the sacrifice that Samuel should offer. At verse 13, what is God's verdict? You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that he gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Saul is a presumptuous and disobedient king and God has rejected him as king over the people. He remains on the throne right up to chapter 31 but by chapter 16 God has anointed the new king David in his place and Saul is on borrowed time from chapter 13 onwards. And the tragedy for today's passage is this that Jonathan in our passage is presented as the ideal heir to the throne. He is a brilliant man to be king. And the question we have by the end of chapter 14 is, has Saul stuffed it up enough that Jonathan will never get to be king? Because, of course, if you're reading through it the first time, you don't know about David yet. We're looking for a king. And the tragedy is that 13.13 uh, 13 hangs over this whole passage, uh, showing us what might have been if Saul had been a more faithful man. What I intend for us to do uh, this afternoon is to look at the, the passage we've had read to us uh, through three questions. And the passage is set up to be a contrast between Saul and Jonathan. And so we're going to look at three questions as a way of unpacking their different characters. And then what we're going to do is uh, we're going to come to Jesus, see how the interaction between Saul and Jonathan points us to the Lord Jesus, as, uh, as Paul has said to us earlier. You know, Jesus said uh, all of the prophets are about him. Uh, and, uh, and the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are part of the, the 
uh, former prophets. And so they're all about Jesus. So we're going to get to Jesus in the end. But let's jump into that first question. Is your faith centred on God's glory or yours? The first contrast I want us to see is between Jonathan's focus and Saul's. The context 1323, and now a detachment of the Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. The word detachment there is probably something like the whole army apart from those people who were out at battle. It's a big number. Uh, and they're, they're gathered at Michmash, and there's Jonathan, and literally the lad who carries his armour. Uh, if you'd like, imagine uh, Andy and Barnaby, uh, you know, the, the heroic uh, king to be and, and his armour bearer, and them looking at each other and saying, Come on, then, let's have a go. Between them and the, their enemy, verse 4, is uh, a two a great big sharp pointy crags, one called Bozes and the other Sene, whose names literally mean slippery and thorny. The impassable pass. Uh, You can't get up there. In other words, uh, the writer uh, sets this up very much as a scene from Mission Impossible. Unbelievably outnumbered. And so you can imagine Tom Cruise playing Andy and a slightly nervous Simon Pegg playing Barnaby. And they're sort of there looking at this. And it is mission impossible. Such is the context. Notice verse 6, key verse for for this first half of the the chapter, how uh, Jonathan appraises the situation. He said to the the young lad, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows, those foreigners who've invaded our land. Let's go go over to them. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Not presumptuous, just perhaps he will. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. There's a phrase you might have heard, one plus God is a majority. And Jonathan sees the situation by that same faith. He looks up and sees God, and then he looks out at the Philistines and says, those Philistines are outnumbered, because we've got God on our side. God can beat anyone he wants to. So Jonathan, he doesn't presume, he doesn't try and twist God's arm, he just says, Let's offer ourselves to God's service. We'll put ourselves in a situation where if God wants to, he can act through us, even just us two. And notice verse 23, the end of that section. So the Lord rescued Israel that day, and the battle moved beyond Beth-Avon. See, the first thing I want you to notice is, is Jonathan's concern for God to get the glory and for God's uh, people to get what God has promised. He's, his concern is for uh, what God is doing, and he offers himself to God's service. And notice by contrast, Saul. Saul's speech in, begins verse 24, uh, tees up that whole section uh, that follows. And the question, I think, as we read verse 24 is this, whose glory is Saul concerned about? Just look down at it with me. He said, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. What is Saul concerned with? His efforts are to avenge himself on his enemies. He isn't concerned with what God wants. In fact, you might see uh, this curse, this this oath, as a way of trying to twist God's arm. He's saying, the people aren't going to eat anything until you give us the victory, God. You better do it my way. You better come to our help. And and he says to the men, you're not going to eat until you've gone and won the battle, so you better get out there and fight. And so... It goes. 
And see, they both want the, the same thing. They want the enemy to be defeated. But do you notice they're very different approaches? Jonathan knows his God and puts himself at God's disposal and says, maybe God will do it this way. Perhaps. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm going to make myself available to him. Saul, by contrast, chooses to try and twist God's arm to do things his way. Saul is a man who is outwardly impressive. The world looks on and sees a successful man. He's the one with the army around him after all. He's got the ark, he's got the priest, he's got everything he needs. Maybe the, the Israel, the, the church of his day, look on and see him doing all the right things. And notice that Saul isn't like lots of the kings who follow him. He's not a, an idolater particularly. He, he worships the Lord God. He has the ark there, he has the priest there. He does all the right religious things. But if you look closely at Saul, if you ask the question, is he living for God's glory or his own? Things become a lot more murky, don't they? So let me ask you, if a person looked closely at your life, would they see you living for God's glory or for your own? When the rubber hits the road, uh, when people look past your church attendance, when people look past your uh, being a moral person, doing the sort of things that are acceptable in your Christian community, would they see you making decisions... Uh, with God's agenda in mind when it comes to your career or who you might marry or where you might live or all of those things all of the questions big and small that come up would someone watching your life see you make a Jonathan-like decision or a Saul-like decision is your faith centred on God's glory or yours secondly is your faith bold or fearful Uh, let's consider Saul uh, again He's sitting there, verse 2, under the pomegranate tree. He's got 600 men with him. Uh, They're strong fighting men. I guess if you remember verse 52, the end of the passage, everywhere Saul goes, he gathers the strong fighting men to himself. So this uh, this is like 600 of the best fighting men in Israel. These are the SAS. Okay, he's got 600 members of the SAS around. He's got the Ark of the Lord with him. He's got a priest with him. He has everything he needs. And he's issued a command that we have to win the battle today. But do you notice they're not doing anything? Saul has ramped up the urgency. You, you better win the fight today or you're not eating. Come on, God, you've got to do something. But he's afraid, and it's not a surprise he's afraid. Back in chapter 13, his, his special forces were much bigger, 3,000 men, and they've begun to melt away in fear because the Philistine army is so very big. In fact, the people have gone to hide in every nook and cranny. They've, they've fled to the high hill. Some of them have gone over to the enemy. And it's only when Jonathan, and God, with God on his side, goes to fight those men uh, that, the, that those uh, afraid Israelites come back to Saul's army. Did you notice that? The situation looks fairly hopeless, and Saul is trapped. He is raging. He wants to have that victory. But he don't act. Because all he sees is his small special forces bunch of people against a massive army. But he has quite a lot of people, doesn't he? Now consider Jonathan and the lad who's with him. 
Uh, we're told in, in chapter 13:22 that there were only two swords in the whole of Israel's army, one for Saul and one for Jonathan. So, so it's not even as if they both got a weapon. They have one sword and a rock, a piece of farm equipment. I don't know what the lad was carrying, you know. And where Saul looks at his 600 men and says, we, can't, we, we want to win the fight, but we can't. Jonathan looks up to the God of heaven and is bold. They face Mission Impossible. They aren't sure whether they should go up. Perhaps we should. I don't know. We're going to enter a bargain. We'll expose ourselves to the Philistines. And if they say, we're going to come down to you, then we know that God hasn't given them into our hands. But if they say, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson, which is what they say, then we'll go up because we know God's given them into our hands and they go up. And it's a kind of ridiculous uh, picture of, of Jonathan crawling up this, uh, this slippery hill on his hands and knees to the enemy camp. Verse 13. But they go up. I don't know, what, what on earth do you think they were thinking? I don't know, standing on top of the crag looking across the valley and seeing thousands of people and thinking... Don't know how God's going to do it, but we're going to go up and have a fight. And we'll see. What did they think God was going to do with one sword in their hands? But you see, what, what Jonathan sees is a God who has chariots of fire, who thunders against his enemies, who has all the power in the universe, and God makes the land quake and sends panic amongst their whole army. They only have one, one sword for their team. Jonathan has a sword in his hand. So what does God do? And he turns the Philistine swords against each other. Literally, uh, in the confusion, they were, uh, verse 20, they were sticking their swords into each other. Oh, these Philistines are in panic. The land is quaking. They know that God is at work and they're terrified and they're running around with a sword in their hands just stabbing each other. God doesn't need a big military force to win his battles. Echoes of Gideon, if you remember back to our Judges series. Now, we don't have any physical battles to fight. We're not called to take up swords. But we do have a sword, don't we? Sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we know that by it, the Lord tears down strongholds. He liberates the captives. That is, he turns people from death to life. He brings people to Christ. And we know from Jonathan that that one plus God is a majority. So I wonder, do you have the same God that Jonathan has? Facing a task unfinished, facing innumerable numbers of people against us, do you look out and have the same God as Jonathan? Do you look around your office at at work and and see a bunch of pagans who, who couldn't care less about Jesus and think, come on then. Do you look at your extended family? Maybe you're the only Christian in your family and you look around and think, it's a big task. But God can work. Do you stand on the platform at Earlsfield Station and look around at the hundreds of other fairly vacant, pre-caffeinated faces and think, come on then, we can do this. Do you believe in this God? See, we're quite a small church, I guess, even for the size of Earlsfield, let alone the size of London, we can feel like we're quite exposed. And I know some of us are leaving the church this summer, and I know the rest of us are feeling quite aware of that. And that's a pretty scary thing. We can feel small. Are we as small as Jonathan and the lad with him? Facing tens of thousands and saying, come on then, 
God's on our side. When we face the issue of, of evangelism, it's interesting who wins here. Saul with his 600 men who don't do anything, achieve nothing. Jonathan and the lad with him, who make themselves available to God and step out in faith, they're the ones who bring the victory. Will we step up? So is your life centred on God's glory or your own? Is your faith bold or fearful? And thirdly, is your faith wise or foolish? Jonathan leads the people into battle. Uh, The Philistines are killing each other. The the cowards who run to the hills return to mop up the battle. Everyone's delighted. Verse 23. The Lord rescued Israel that day and the battle moved beyond Beth-Avon. It should be a time of rejoicing, shouldn't it? And so the contrast with verse 24 is quite shocking. Back in 13 verse 6, uh, the word is hard-pressed. The the Philistines are hard-pressing God's people. But they've been delivered, verse 23, and yet the same word is used again. Verse 24. Now the men of Israel were in distress, literally hard-pressed that day, because Saul had bound the people under an oath. They're not not hard-pressed by their enemies anymore, they're hard-pressed by their king. And so the battle through the rest of this passage is between wisdom and folly. None of the men eat any of the food because the king has said not to, verse 24. And then they enter Temptation City. Just verse 25... Israel is literally the land flowing with milk and honey. We're not talking about milk here, we're talking about the honey. It's flowing, it's oozing, it's literally dropping out of the trees. It's just everywhere. There's honey everywhere and the people are starving. But nobody takes anything because of the oath of the king. Except Jonathan, he, he takes them because he doesn't know about the oath. And his eyes brighten, verse 27, it's a good thing. When your blood sugar is low, I don't know if you've ever tried to do any really vigorous exercise... Have you ever tried to do that with, without having eaten anything for a whole day? I mean, talk to Andy, who's, who knows all about these sort of uh, scientific, sportsy things. But I'm guessing you don't want to go and run a marathon having eaten nothing for 24 hours. These guys were running, chasing after their enemies, fighting a battle on an empty stomach. And they're flagging, they're fainting. Uh, well, Jonathan is tired and he eats. And, and, and he, the sugar rush does its thing and he perks up and he's all up for the next thing. And then the people say to him, uh, your father bound the army under a strict oath saying, cursed is any man who eats food today. That's why the men are faint. And notice Jonathan's diagnosis here. My father has made trouble, literally great trouble, terrifying trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been greater? Do you notice what the, the consequence of the, the curse there? Do you notice the consequence? Saul wanted a total victory over his enemies. That's why he issued the curse in the first place. The oath was, until I've got vengeance on my enemies. And he would have got it, because God was already at work through Jonathan up on, up on the hill. But you see, God uses human means. He uses Jonathan and his armour bearer. He could have struck them without, but he uses means, he uses people. But these means, this army, they're not fit to the task, are they? Because Saul has kept them from eating. Saul's curse has made the army unfit for the task that God has given them the opportunity to win. That is a total victory over the Philistines. 
far from his oath twisting God's arm to give him the victory, it is the reason why they don't get a total victory over the Philistines. It's why at the end of the passage we're told that there was bitter war with the Philistines all of Saul's days. He had a chance right here to put an end to that, to put an end to the Philistine army. And he doesn't because he makes this stupid oath that binds his people to starvation. But it gets worse. The evening comes, verse 31. So uh, the, the, the oath was until the evening, till the victory's won. They, they've got the victory, the evening comes, and the men are very faint. And so they, uh, they fall on the plunder. And they, and they just kill the animals, and they, and they start eating, and just, they're so hungry. And they don't drain the blood out first, violating God's law. You've sinned against God. And now here's the thing I want you to spot. It's really important. Who is Saul cross with? Jonathan or the people? Jonathan has unknowingly broken his father's oath. Unknowingly because he was off actually fighting the Philistines when his father made the vow. The Israelites, on the other hand, the whole army has broken the law of God. Here's how Saul responds. Verse 38, he said, Come here, all of you who are leaders of the army. Uh, I'm sorry, where are we? Uh, so, yeah, so uh, roll a stone over here, verse 34. Go get the people, bring them over here, bring your animals, just slaughter them, eat them sensibly. Don't, don't, don't sin anymore. No atonement, no propitiation, just stop that. <coughs> That's wrong, come and do this. Then what does he do? When he finds out that Jonathan has had a little honey, he absolutely pounds on him, doesn't he? The Israelites, to a man, are violating God's law, and Saul is not that bothered. But break the law of the king. Break his oath, and man, he is not happy. He's prepared to execute his own son. And some of you will remember back to the, the Judges series, Jephthah. Jephthah, who's, who's the judge who wins this victory, and on his way home he says, the first thing that comes out of my house I will sacrifice to the Lord. And of course, he was thinking maybe of a sheep or maybe the family dog or something, and it's his daughter who comes out of the house. And he goes, well, I've made this vow, so I've got to go through with it. And so, yeah, it's a little ambiguous in the text, but you're basically left thinking he's going to kill his daughter <coughs> as a thanksgiving sacrifice to, the, to God. Very, very sinister. And in exactly the same way, Saul has made this rash vow. Whoever has done this will die, even if it's my son. And of course, it is his son. A rash and a stupid vow. Everybody can see it, but of course, he's the king and nobody speaks up. Right up to the point where he's about to actually take Jonathan down. And it takes for the whole army to stand up to the king and say, you know God was on his side today, right? You, you understand that it was through him that God won the victory. And finally, Saul relents. Do you see, Saul is this unstable, lunatic character, completely lacking in wisdom. He's so completely committed to the things he said that even when it becomes really obvious that the things he said are stupid, he still keeps going. He needs the whole army to stand up and say, don't go there. Can't you see? This is destructive. It's, it's lunacy. You're going to kill the one person who actually had the faith to go and win the battle. Idiotic. And by the way, you know he's the heir of the, the kingdom, right? You're going to kill the heir as well. Consider Jonathan by contrast. Jonathan is able to assess the whole situation with wisdom. 
He has the wisdom to see that God plus one is a majority and wins the battle. He sees the honey for what it is, a gift from God to a starving army. It's not often you walk through the forest and find honey oozing out of the trees and dripping off the branches. It's a gift from God and he treats it that way. And he sees his father's vow for what it is. It is trouble. Really serious trouble. And the reason why the people don't get the victory that he wants. Can you see the contrast? Can you see the two characters? God has abandoned Saul. Samuel no longer visits him. He's got a priest, but he's a priest from a, from a rejected line from Eli's house. And he's a king who is totally committed to his own agenda. He manipulates the situation to his own ends. He goes through with a very stupid, rash bow, even when everybody else can see that it's idiotic. Outwardly, successful. Looks like God's man. Goes to church, does all the right things, very impressive character. But inwardly, he's not for God at all. And then you have Jonathan. His heart is for God. He offers himself to God's service. In the face of alarming odds, he steps up and does what's right. He's bold to take the chance presented to him, and God gives him the victory. And it seems that walking with God like that, Jonathan has much more wisdom than his father. So let me ask, are you wise or foolish? Do you walk with God? Do you search the scriptures? When you have a question, when you're, when you're facing a decision in your life, do you search the scriptures? Do you pray for the wisdom that God promises to give to those who ask? Uh, do you call on your brothers and sisters and say, look, I'd love your wisdom on this. I've, I've got this decision and I, and I really need as much wisdom as I can because the counsel of many is wise. Or do you go your own way? Do you ignore God's word? Do you, do you push God's word to the margin because actually you want to live for yourself? That you're happy to be in church, you're happy to, to put on a face, but in your heart of hearts you're centred on your own decisions and you'd rather not make them with reference to God. Are you centred on God's glory? Are you bold in faith? And do you seek to live by God's wisdom? I think these are questions that we can wrestle with out of this passage. We've seen, I think that Jonathan is a model of faith and Saul is the antitype of faith. And I guess we might want to ask the question, who do I most resonate with? Not who would I most want to resonate with, but who actually makes decisions the way I do? Who lives the way I tend to? Let me say, we can be like Jonathan. Often when we look at Jesus, we think, hey, well, obviously he's perfect and I can't be perfect. Well, Jonathan's just a man, isn't he? Jonathan is just a man who is nevertheless godly and wise and brave and bold and we can be just like that by faith. If we cling to the truth that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. But there is a second sense of, in which we have to look at Jonathan. A tragic sense. We said at the beginning, he's a truly tragic figure. He should be the king. He's the king in waiting. And maybe at the end of our passage, we're looking at him thinking, thank goodness, somebody had the common sense to speak to the king, so he's still alive and still might become the king. Because, of course, Jonathan is the one who's supposed to be king. And in that sense, Jonathan points us forward to Jesus, who is the king that one Samuel is looking forward to. And in the same way, Saul, who seems to act as the anti-Jonathan character here, acts as an antichrist figure for us. 
I want you to look at one more passage with me. Just turn to, to Mark chapter 7, would you? I want you to see the parallel between this incident and one in Jesus' life that helps us to see Jesus more clearly. Mark chapter 7, at verse 2, Jesus' disciples, so we're at page 1010. Jesus' disciples eat with unwashed hands. Uh, this violates the rules of the elders, and they're really cross about it. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? And Jesus responds, verse 9, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. See, these are outwardly very impressive religious people. They go to church, they do all the right things, but in their hearts they have set aside the word of God and replaced it with the rules of men. And so, verse 6, the quote from Isaiah, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Outwardly, all the show, outwardly very impressive people, religiously very respected and Jesus said you have set aside the word of God and replaced it with the rules of man and isn't that what Saul does not that fussed about the word of God that says don't eat animals with the blood still in it not interested in that very happy to put in place his own binding oath that burdens the people and threatens the life of his son a stupid oath doesn't Saul do the same thing as the Pharisees and the religious teachers here are being more concerned with man's word than God's word. Uh, isn't that what they do? So much so, in fact, that Saul is prepared to kill the saviour of his people. That's how Jonathan is described, the saviour. Uh, praise God the people step in and intervene and save his life. Uh, but not so with Jesus, was it? Not so with Jesus. Uh, just like Saul, the re- rulers of Jesus, they hate the way that Jesus clings to the word of God. Uh, he exposes their sin and so on, and they decide to get rid of him in, in a very absurd way, in the same way that Saul was going to get rid of Jonathan. But in Jesus' case, n- nobody steps in. Nobody ransoms Jesus. That's the word again in our passage. The people bathe for his blood. Everybody's in on it. The Jews conspire with the nations. Not, no longer the Jews uh, getting victory over the nations, uh, but them all colluding against the Saviour to put the king to death. And the astonishing thing about this is that it is through Jesus' death that God makes him the saviour. Just as one man and his God face down the enemies on the battlefield, so there is one man and his God who face down our enemies of sin, the nations, the devil, death and the justice of God. They face all these things. Like Jonathan, Jesus would say, not my will, but yours be done. He will make himself a servant king, make himself available to God, even to the point of death. No, Jesus wouldn't be saved by the people he had rescued. Rather, he would die in order to save the people from the very sin they were committing in putting him to death. When you read through our passage this week, I hope you will, when you read of Jonathan, uh, when you see uh, Jonathan the Saviour climbing that slippery hill to win that victory, would you also see another Saviour climbing another hill outside Jerusalem with with a cross on his back? And as you see God thundering against his enemies for Jonathan and winning the victory, would you see God turning the sky black and tearing the temple curtain 
as he wins a victory through Jesus, he has done enough to win, uh, win you back for God. I think there's a strong challenge in our passage. It's a challenge that should get us to examine ourselves. A challenge uh, to be like Jonathan. To be courageous in faith. To see God as bigger than our fears. Uh, there's a challenge not to be like Saul. Not to let our own agenda govern our lives. But make ourselves available to God. There is a strong challenge and there is a marvellous comfort, isn't there? For Jonathan also points to a greater saviour who has borne every failing of ours, every failure to, to do as Jonathan did, one who has won a victory over sin and death. So we can trust, like Jonathan, through the trials and decisions of life because we have seen a God who has made himself uh, trustworthy in the Lord Jesus. We have seen his trustworthiness. Here is a God who is utterly committed to doing good in and through us. And we can entrust ourselves to him. Shall we pray? Our Father, we are very aware of the temptation to be like Saul, to take comfort in numbers, to stay in a holy huddle, to not risk things for you. And we see the glory of a Jonathan who is prepared even by himself to, to strike out in faith and to see you win victories. And so we pray that you would make us like him, bold in faith and trusting in the God who is able to do far more than we ask or imagine. And Father, we want to delight in the Lord Jesus, one who has won a victory that we never could, one who has proved that you are trustworthy in the trials of life because you did it for us and we pray that you would help us to trust him and live for him in bold faith this week we pray it in Jesus name Amen well time is short and um, let's stand let's sing very quickly and uh, our last song really focuses, obviously, as we've been pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's praise his good name. Stand. <laughs>